Amen. You guys may be seated if you'll find your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 7. I love to hear your voices as you sing. Did anybody catch the World Series this week? Anybody watch the World Series? Uh, A few Indian fans in the room that are probably a little distraught, but uh, there's also some Cub fans. I, uh, I was raised in Illinois before I was saved. And uh, then we came down to Texas after I got saved. But uh, so growing up as a little boy about 100 miles outside of Chicago, I, I have some early memories running home from school and catching the Cubs games with Harry Carey as the announcer and watching the Cubs play. They were my favorite team. And so I was watching a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I'm intrigued at the big sporting events is I'm intrigued by the, the faces in the crowd. Because you have these individuals that are emotionally vested in the game. They've spent a lot of money to get to the game. And to some extent, they're standing between victory and defeat. They're right there in the middle. And so their posture always strikes me as interesting. You'll see those that are doing the praying hands at the game or this. Or then you see the uh, two-fisted goalpost when something good happens, you know. And, and the, the stranger hug, that always strikes me as interesting. My favorite is what ESPN calls the surrendered cobra that the fans will have. And watch it, watch the, watch the crowd. There will always be somebody sitting there like a cobra in the middle of the game. And so you have these different faces. And in a sporting event like that, there is a collision between two crowds because there's a fine line between winning and losing, between joy and sorrow, between going home as the victor or going home as the one that has faced, faced defeat. And in a crowd like we have today, there's also a collision of individuals. Some people walk into the door today happy. Others walk in sad. There's a fine line between those that are joyful and those that are frustrated, those that are spiritually alive and those that are spiritually dead. In Luke chapter 7, we see a story in Jesus' life where there was a collision between two crowds. Look with me to verse 11, Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Now, Jesus had just finished ministering in a little fishing town called Capernaum. If Jesus had had a Fitbit, it would have showed that there was about 50,000 steps between Capernaum and Nain. Basically, a marathon's distance that Jesus and the disciples had walked. So no doubt, Peter was sewing his 26.2 patch on his backpack whenever Jesus and the crowd arrived at Nain. Now, the Bible says that he was accompanied by a large crowd. There was a lot of excitement. There were a lot of people that were around Jesus as he journeyed between the two towns. Nain means beauty. It was a little village, a small town, that was built on the slope of a mountain. So you've probably visited the mountains at some point in your life, and you've seen one of those little mountain towns. They're always very picturesque as you see the little town, and then right above it are the slopes of the mountains. Interestingly enough, Nain was about eight miles, or a morning's walk, from Nazareth. Jesus, having been raised in Nazareth and having spent his early adult life throughout his 20s there in the carpenter shop of Nazareth, he likely was very familiar with this little village, Nain. Anybody here grow up in a small town? Anybody? 
few people grew up in the 8.30 service. There were like tons of small town folks. But uh, uh, anyway, most of us probably grew up in metroplex areas. But one of the things, if you're familiar with small towns, everybody knows everybody. In fact, usually everybody's kind of somewhat related to everybody. And so scholars estimate that there were about 2,000 people living between Nazareth and Nain. So both were rather small communities. And they probably knew each other and knew one another's family quite well. Because they were so close together, they probably had relatives living in both communities. Well, at this time, Jesus was very, very popular. He had come onto the scene, and he was doing these miracles, but he was also teaching a message that brought hope to some people that were very hopeless. He taught a message of forgiveness. He taught a message of grace. And the individuals that were receiving this message had lived their entire lives under Roman domination. They religiously were under the Pharisaical rule of law. And so this crowd following Jesus spiritually was coming alive. There was a lot of joy in the crowd. Whenever Jesus would teach, I would imagine whenever they would sing a hymn, they didn't just go through the motions. There was exuberance. There was laughter. There was excitement. As Jesus, the disciples, and this crowd stroll in to the little village of Naim. Verse 12 says, Just as he neared the gate, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was also with her. So here we see the collision of the crowds. Jesus and his crowd of joy runs into a crowd of sorrow. As they enter into Nain, they enter into a crowd that was going out for a funeral procession. And so now there is a great mixture of crowds. As a pastor, one of the heaviest moments that I am called upon to be a part of is to stand next to a casket when a family is saying their final goodbyes. I don't know if you've ever had to go through that yet. It's a very difficult moment when the service is over and the family stands at the casket and says goodbye right before they close the casket and their loved one is taken out to the cemetery. It is especially heavy when a mom is saying goodbye to her child. Mothers do not envision themselves outliving their kids. And so whenever that happens, it's a very, very sad, heavy scene. And so the scene here is a mom that has said goodbye to her husband. And now this is her only son, and she is saying goodbye to her son. So she is surrounded by a crowd, and yet there is a reality in her grief that she's all alone. And there is a reality within that society that soon the crowds would go back to their homes and she would be there by herself. Whenever I run, I I run along this trail and I've I've come to know three geese, come to know three geese that live on that trail. And I have learned that geese are most wretched of animals and they will chase you and try to bite you whenever you run past them. And so there's an old country term. Anybody ever heard 
wild goose chase? I now understand what that means because frequently I find myself chased by wild geese. I want to do just a short wild goose chase here on this subject today of a child's responsibility to care for aging parents. Since the 60s, there has been uh, an idea that as a society we have tended to embrace, and that is that as a family unit, you're together until the kids turn 18, and then everybody kind of goes their separate ways, and you begrudgingly huddle up again at the holidays. But the family kind of lives independent. And you see this as a mindset within our culture. It's not just with young people, but also with our seniors. The seniors often want to kind of live life on their terms independently, and and often the kids also want to live life uh, on their own terms independently. And so as families, we tend to drift over time. I have a professor acquaintance who was talking the other day about uh, dialoguing at the United Nations. He was invited to come and speak to some people at the United Nations, and they were discussing this idea. When children are born, are they primarily born into a family, or are they primarily born into the society? Do children ultimately have a right to be a part of the family into which they were born? And the professor was arguing, was, say, was noting that many of those that were in positions of leadership were taking the argument that children are not really born into a family, but children are born into a society. And the, so the society ultimately has the primary right to set the values, teach values, and raise the children, and the family is only secondary within that overall discussion. Now, if you extrapolate that out and think about it, and I understand that sometimes children are born into horrible situations, and I also understand that sometimes uh, uh, families uh, give up children for adoption and things of that nature, and so children are born into both a family and into a society. But if we give up on the idea that uh, children are born into a family, think about the terrible results of such a community. And so as a society, over the last 50, 60 years, we have redefined what sexuality means rather than it being an expression of marriage. It's now an expression of oneself. We have redefined marriage. We are in the process of redefining gender. And through all this, family is also being redefined. And so one of the things that has happened is we have shifted the responsibility for family to care for one another to society. And the expectation, the idea is that organizations will care for those that are in need. Now, again, I understand that sometimes people have physical health challenges that require that they have full-time medical care. I get that. That's not what I'm talking about here. But the Bible teaches, first of all, that parents have a responsibility to honor life and to care for their young children. When God blesses you with a child, you have a responsibility to care for that child. And there is no greater call in life 
than parenthood. Now, the Bible also teaches that children have a responsibility to care for their aging parents. You have a responsibility to the best of your ability to help them. You say, well, Lash, that's your opinion. Well, let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3 says, Support widows who are genuinely widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness towards their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. When you go down into verse 8, the Bible says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is, his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, normally within our society, we take verse 8 to mean the father, the husband, the mother has a responsibility to provide for their own children. Yes, that is true, but within context, verse 8 is actually talking about the extended family that we as family members have a responsibility to care for one another. That is a biblical idea. All right, back to our regularly scheduled programming. So here Jesus finds a heartbroken mother who is all alone in the world. Husband gone, now the son is gone. It is possible that Jesus knew her son. After all, they were probably both young men who had been raised in similar close-by communities. And so in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, don't cry. Now here's this widow, surrounded by the crowd, but in reality, she was all alone. And here is Jesus, surrounded by his crowd, hearing the praises, but in reality, he's all alone. For the widow, the crowd could not give her what was really needed. They could bring her food, they could cry with her, but they couldn't solve the problem of death. They couldn't solve her loneliness. For Jesus, none of the people in the crowd could really give the world what it really needed. They couldn't give the world new life. They could enjoy his teaching. They could enjoy his miracles. But the crowd couldn't solve the problem of sin. And so you have two people here. You have the widow who faced the sorrow of living all alone. And you have Jesus who faces the sorrow of dying all alone. And the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on her. Now, it wasn't a there, there, it'll be okay compassion. If you drill down into the Greek language here, it is a deep-seated inward connection to this woman's grief. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you were truly moved with compassion? Someone around you was going through an emotional moment and your spirit connected with their spirit. You remember that moment? Remember how you felt? Remember the intensity of emotion then? Well, Jesus tells her, don't cry, klaio, don't sob, don't wail. That was the reality of her crying. She was sobbing. 
she was wailing, and Jesus comes to her and says, don't cry. He was connecting with her on an emotional level. There are times in life when the crowd has no answers. Your only hope is for God to be God. We live in a world where the crowd has a lot of opinions, but as Christians, we sometimes have to remember our only hope is for God to be God. I understand there's an election taking place this Tuesday, and uh, a lot of people are on pins and needles about the election. I encourage you, as I did last week, to vote. Go out and vote. Most societies throughout the history of the world have not had the luxury of having a vote. We have a vote, so take advantage. Take that responsibility and vote. And in this election, there are two crowds pulling for their candidates, a lot of opinions, but then there's also a reality. Our ultimate hope is for God to be God. And I want to remind you that when November 9th, comes, God will still be on his throne. God will still be in control. Whether your candidate wins or not, God is still on his throne. And whether the days ahead are met with prosperity or whether the days ahead find ourselves facing persecution and turmoil, God is still on his throne. And if you become a student of church history, you will also discover that it is frequently during the times of difficulty that people's attention turns to God and the church is revitalized. It's going to be okay on November 9th, no matter what happens. Some of you are parents and grandchildren, and you're trying to raise these children that God has placed in your life. You know, the crowd will always have an opinion, especially in this connected world in which we live. There's a whole lot of opinions on how you're supposed to raise your kids. Ultimately, you have to make a decision. This is the route that I believe that God has called me to go, and you have to trust God to be God. You have to trust God to do a work in the heart of that child that goes beyond you so that whenever they go beyond you in their life, they're able to listen to and obey the voice of God. Students, a lot of y'all are at a point in life where you're trying to figure out what to do. What career do I go into? What college do I go to into? Where, where do I go? You know, the crowd always gives you a lot of ideas, but the reality is this. You've got to listen to the voice of God. You've got to follow Him and let God be God. The reality is, is that everyone in this room has a challenge somewhere in your life. And in that challenge, there's a crowd that has a lot of opinions as to what you should do. But at some point, it comes down to you and God, and you trusting God, following God, taking those steps of faith, and God being God. And for this widow, she was heartbroken. She was all alone. Only God could turn her tears into joy. And for this son, talk about problems. He was dead. He was headed to the cemetery. His life here on earth over. Only God could turn death into life. So in verse 14, Jesus comes up and he touches the open coffin and the pallbearers stop. And he said, young men, I tell you, young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up. 
Yeah, you read that correctly. The dead man set up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, when Jesus performs a miracle, whether it be large or small, when Jesus performs a miracle, you better pay attention because God doesn't just exercise frivolous miracles. When Jesus or God performs a miracle, there's a spiritual lesson behind it. So the miracle here is the dead man came back to life. But here's the spiritual lesson. Jesus has power over life and death. The miracle is the widow and her son were once again united as a family. The spiritual lesson is that Jesus has the power to replace our loneliness with love. There are times in life when you arrive at a point where the crowd has no solution. And it's at that point that you realize that God is life's solution. Jesus gave this woman something that only God could give her. He gave her new life. Well, in verse 16, Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went through, throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Now notice how the crowd reacted to the miracle. The first thing that happened was fear came over everyone. Listen, when God shows up and God does a miracle, people don't just respond in the Bible with a golf clap. Well, that was nice. They don't respond with, hey, God, let's talk about this. Hey, you know, we're buddies. When, when God shows up in the Bible, people get scared. I mean, there is a, a godly, uh, holy fear that comes over everybody. Uh, last Monday night, I, I took some of the kids, took my kids trick-or-treating. And so uh, my, my three-year-old, Bennett, he dressed up as a construction worker. And so he had his hard hat, and he had his little vest, and he was just having a ball going around and trick-or-treating, and he would knock on that door, trick-or-treat! And he was getting candy and just excited as can be. It was a good family moment. And then we turned the corner, and we, we came by that house. You know, there's always like one house on every block that really overdoes it. And so this house had like fire and torches and zombies and all this kind of stuff. And, and like Bennett's like scared to death. And so uh, he, he starts instantly changing and he's like, dad, dad, dad. And so I like carry him past that house and he's like, I'm okay, I can walk again. So I, I put him down and he starts walking again. And then somebody comes up the sidewalk dressed as Chewbacca. And Bennett just lost it, man. He's like, Mama! And he starts running down the sidewalk. I got the dog on a leash. I'm like, Bennett, come here, you know. I'm chasing him, hoping that he doesn't cross the street. And, you know, whenever, whenever God does something, there is a holy fear. And when this guy rose from the dead, set up and started speaking, the crowd was a bit scared. There were people running for Mama. But then notice number two. They glorified God. They understood the source of the miracle. The source of the miracle was God. And after the miracle, Jesus didn't say, hey, I've got some books at the book table in the back. I'll be glad to sell them to you. He didn't say, hey, I've got a prayer rag I'll give you. After the miracle, Jesus pointed them to God. Thirdly, they recognized Jesus for who he is. Now, they missed it by a bit. They said, a great prophet has risen up among us. Now, if you think about that, they were neighbors to Jesus. And so 
they knew his family. And so they're like, one of our own has risen up into a great prophet. There's such a thing in the story of Jesus as the unveiling that Jesus, uh, little by little, unveiled that he is the Messiah and that he is the Savior. And they were beginning to see Jesus as more than just a man. Fourth, they understood that God had paid them a visit. One of the greatest shames in life is when God pays us a visit and we miss it. As your pastor, I've been extraordinarily excited the last few months as we have had story after story in our church of life change. We've been having story after story of God getting a hold of a heart, showing his love, and that person coming to know Christ as Savior, being saved, being baptized, Right here in this room, this has been happening. Young adults, today we saw two young adults. I think both Tyler and Larry are both seniors, right? Is that right? So y'all are, y'all are young adults in life. Last week, we, a couple weeks ago, we baptized Tan, a man that came out of Buddhism into Christianity. Uh, it's so exciting to see life change. And whenever God is at work and God pays us a visit, Don't miss it. How sad it is whenever we miss out on what God is doing right in front of us because we're so worried about the election or important stuff like our fantasy football team or getting to the gobble fest line before all the turkey is gone or finding a good parking spot. Life is always going to have activity. Life is always going to have worries, and a lot of them are mindless activities and worries. Life will always have its distractions, but I implore you, don't miss out on the work of God in our midst. Don't get distracted by little things and miss out on the fact that God is at work. And when we see people's lives being changed, when we see people driving that stake into the ground, that spiritual milestone of baptism, that is never something to respond at with a golf clap or, yeah, wasn't that great. That should bring within us a sense of deep, deep joy that God is at work and He's changing lives. In this story, we have two crowds One of them happy, one sad. We have a grieving widow. We have a compassionate Savior. Let me ask you this question. Of the characters in the story, which one do you relate with the most? The reality is is that there's one character in the story that we all relate with, and that's the dead guy in the box. Say, hold, hold on a second, Lash. I know this sermon can be a little bit boring, but last I checked, I'm still alive, okay? I may be asleep, but I'm, I'm still here. I haven't checked out on you, okay? I'm alive and well. Well, spiritually, the Bible says that we are all dead, spiritually. Particularly, we are dead, and our coffin is trespasses and sin. And the crowd has no answer. A lot of opinions on what we should do about evil and sin. A lot of times people just live in denial. It's really not that bad. We pretend as if life is all good. But if you look around, we smell the stench of sin everywhere. 
That's why there's this feeling within you. Even, even during times of prosperity, even when things are going good, there's still this just feeling within you that something is just deeply, deeply broke. Well, it is. Our creation has been fractured by sin. And so everything and everyone is stained by sin. And there is this reality that we try not to think about that one day our life will collide with the funeral procession. One day spiritual death collides with physical death. It's in all of our futures. And at this point, our only hope is for God to be God. The mission of Jesus' life was to bring glory to God by bringing life to death. And Jesus did this by coming to dwell among us. We call that the incarnation, God taking on flesh. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And then Jesus lived a life that none of us could live. Jesus lived a life that wasn't stained by sin. He lived a sinless life. His death on the cross was not merely the execution of a teacher who ran afoul with Rome, but his death on the cross was an atonement tied to thousands of years of Scripture where there Jesus as the Messiah suffered and bled and died as a substitute for you and for me. He died for our sins. He was buried, and He rose again. Now, there's a big difference between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection that we see in this story. Because the young man that was resurrected in the story, he would die again. In Jesus' life, He ascended to heaven, and the Bible says that one day He is coming back again. Whenever he comes back again, he will not come back as the innocent baby in Bethlehem, but whenever he comes back again, he will come back as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The shalom that was broken with Adam and Eve will be restored. A new heaven and new earth will come with him. And Jesus will bring peace for all eternity. He'll bring life to death. And so I just have to ask you this question before we leave this passage. Has there ever been a time in your life when the hand of Jesus touched you and you went from death to life spiritually? Has there been that time in your life where you embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord? Would you be so kind as to bow your head right where you're sitting? The band's going to come to the stage. I realize that In our culture, we don't often bow our heads and not look around, but that's what I'm asking you to do right now because I want to invite you to do something today. If there's never been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and Lord, I want to invite you to make this your moment. God has gone to work in your life, and you've felt Him speaking to you throughout the message today. And if you're real honest with yourself, there's never been that time where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I want to encourage you to make this your moment. So with your head bowed, would you just cry out to God and say, Lord, I've done things that are sin. I'm a sinner. And I ask your forgiveness. I place my faith in Jesus Christ and I am trusting in Him as Savior and Lord. And I'm asking you to invade my life and to change me from the inside out. Give me the power to follow you, to learn more about you, and to serve you. 
Lord, this is my moment of salvation where I'm trusting in you and trusting in Jesus. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to mark this moment in time because this is a spiritual milestone in your life. Don't ever forget this moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but there is one thing that I want to do. I, I want you to look up at me and just make eye contact with me because I want to pray with you. This was my moment today. I, I prayed to receive Christ. Would you just look up at me and make eye contact with me? When we have these moments with Christ, the next step is to follow Him in baptism and to grow in Him and to learn to worship Him. And so if God is at work in your heart today, I want to be a pastor to you. I want to help you and encourage you, pray with you. I'll be here during this next song. I'll be here after the service as well. And I'd love to talk with you about where do you go from here. Let's stand together. The band's going to lead us in a song. It's a song of worship, so sing with the band. If the Lord leads you to pray during this time, then feel free to follow Him. Pray, sing, respond to God.